Our Bibles are open once again this morning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 4 beginning uh, today. And so if you'll take your copy of God's Word or power up your copy of God's Word or grab a copy of God's Word in the Pew Bible right in front of you. We're in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We believe the first letter that Paul ever wrote. We're talking these days on the subject concerning the essential gospel, the foundations of what the gospel is, uh, why it's significant, what it's not, and why it's critically, crucially important that we understand it because we've been saved and left here by God for a specific purpose, namely to minister to the gospel, to testify to the gospel, so that men and women might hear the gospel, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So you can't be saved apart from hearing the gospel, and that's the reason God gives it to us. He wants us to know it, understand it, live it, and communicate it, so that men, women, boys, and girls might hear it and trust Jesus Christ to save them. We're going to look at a very important passage of Scripture this morning. This passage of Scripture was one of the first passages I ever treated from a pulpit in my life as a very young man, as an invited guest uh, to a friend's church in Nashville, Tennessee. This was the passage that I chose to preach from. I will spare you preaching that exact same sermon over again, lest it all make us nauseous in the house of God this morning. Very young man, and it probably wasn't worth the paper it was printed on, but we trust God did something with it, and you get today the Revised Standard Version. Can I have an amen? And so uh, Galatians chapter 4. A few, few things um, factor into success more importantly than a sense of timing. You have to have a proper sense of timing. Knowing, knowing when to start that new initiative or when to introduce that new product. Timing is everything, it's often been said, and it's especially important uh, in business for sure. But it's important in a whole host of other areas of life. A sense of timing is important, of course, in relationships. Knowing exactly when to ask that girl out on that date for the very first time, you better get it right. Knowing when to pop the question and ask her to marry you. Timing is very important in terms of that. Uh, timing is important in medicine. Doctors have to know when the right time is to remove that cataract. Sometimes it's too early. Sometimes you may have waited too late. Or when to replace that joint. When to put that artificial knee in. Or when to wait for just a little while longer. Because we can make by for another few years with just a series of shots. Timing is, of course, importance, uh, important in athletics. We're a sports-crazy people living in a sports-crazy nation, and in just about every realm of athletics, timing is important. I was watching golf on television for just a few minutes yesterday while I bounced my grandson on my aging knee. I had the golf tournament on, and, and the wind was blowing there at Hilton Head, South Carolina. And so knowing when to hit the shot and how to hit the shot, very important. Every quarterback knows that when he throws the pass, when he releases the pass, very significant, or swinging a bat at a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, whatever it might be, timing is critically important. Did you know this morning that timing played a critical role when it came 
to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, God could have sent the Lord Jesus Christ at any given time, I suppose, but he chose a specific time to send the Savior into the world. One of the most important lines in the Bible includes one that we'll read in the greater paragraph in just a few minutes, and it is the line, in the fullness of time. It's one of the most important statements in the Bible. The Apostle Paul uses that statement here in a passage that I think reveals the key to unlocking the door of God's plan for redeeming the lost world. Because God's plan, heart and soul of it, involves the sending of a Savior. So when God did that, is very significant and very important. Let's take a look at the larger passage this morning, Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read the first seven verses. Everybody with me? Ready to read? Say amen. Here's what the Bible says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we are grateful this morning to be assembled in your house today. Thank you for the blessing of church and thank you for the privilege of worship where God's people can come together and experience something that we absolutely cannot get in any other environment throughout the week. Thank you that when we come together, there's a special power, a special sense of anticipation, a special sense of urgency. And now as we await to hear the word of the Spirit of God through the written word of God, we pray that <clears throat> He will speak in tones that are clear and in ways that not only educate us, but in ways that inspire us and move us toward greater maturity as we walk with Christ. And we pray all of this in his wonderful and powerful name. And everybody together said, amen. Now, I shouldn't have to, at this point anyway, remind you that Paul's letter to the Galatians is his uh, very aggressive defense of the essential gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the gospel, of course, we're talking about God's plan of salvation through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, plus absolutely nothing. And of course, to have a gospel, you have to have a Savior. To have good news that a person can be made alive again and and know the Lord, you have to have a means by which that becomes possible, and that, of course, involves a person, not just a process, not just a plan. It involves a person. There is no gospel without a person whose name is Jesus Christ. 
And it's about that Jesus and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we sometimes call the first coming of the Lord Jesus, or what theologians refer to as the incarnation, God becoming flesh. That is heart and soul of what Paul's talking about in the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. I'd like to talk with you for a few minutes this morning about some of the significance, uh, significances of the incarnation for every believer. I'm going to give you three of them this morning if you're taking notes. The first thing about the coming into the world of Jesus Christ is that it exposes our need for a Savior. The incarnation is a reminder that we can't work our way to heaven. It's a reminder that we can't get to God on our best efforts, that the gospel is not based on human performance or human achievement. And so when we think about the incarnation, the coming into the world of Jesus Christ, this is the essential component of the gospel because it's a reminder that apart from the work of God, we have no hope. If God doesn't show up to deal with our sin condition for us, we're left in that sin condition, and that leaves us, each and every one, in an awful condition of hopelessness where the only thing that we have to look forward to is death. Part of the problem with the goings-on there in the region of South Galatia was this attempt, of course, to dovetail salvation by the grace of God and salvation through human works. And it will not work. The two are mutually exclusive. To try to embrace grace and works at the same time is like trying to get on a horse and ride it in two completely different directions. It's absolutely impossible. For centuries, God's people tried to measure up to the law as a means of righteousness. How does one become righteous in the sight of God? Well, most Jews were taught by the rabbis that the way you do it is by keeping the law, attaching yourself to the law, working hard, keep those commandments. That's the way you find righteousness with God. But as we found, uh, the only thing that leads to is a life of frustration. Probably even better than the word frustration is the word bondage. What that leads to, trying to keep the law, leads to a life of bondage. It's a condition of slavery that leads to, indeed to a life of frustration because you're constantly disappointed. Remember from last week, the law functions as that child guide, that pedagogue, that nanny that carries that wicked rod, that wicked cane, and every time we fail, it flails. Amen. I just made that up. Every time we fail, the law flails. In other words, it takes that cane and it just knocks us upside the head and we end up frustrated walking around with lumps literally and bruises all over our body. And that's because none of us are good enough to keep the law. Not only can we not be saved, but the reason we can't be saved is because we can't live up to it. The real reason the law's there, as we talked about a little bit last Sunday, is to help us to know what, what, what sin is. It defines sin. We wouldn't know that it's wrong to steal, kill, commit adultery, uh, take someone's life unjustly. We, did, we wouldn't know that that transgressed the law of God unless God told us. He has to write it down, and He has to give it to us. And so the law is there to define sin. It's there to reveal how weak we are, how incapable we are of keeping it. And of course, ultimately, it's there to drive us to something deeper and to something better. It's there to remind us, I don't have a chance unless God shows up and does something. And so the law is there to point us not only to our need, but to God's provision 
as our ultimate means of connecting to Him, having standing before Him, living forever with Him. And to make that point, Paul uses an illustration yet again from everyday family life. Last week, he uses the illustration of the jailer. The law was a prison warden, keeps us locked in bondage. And then he talked about that pedagogue, which is kind of the overseeing nanny, most of the time a cruel taskmaster. Today, he takes off a little bit of a take on that, but it's not quite the same thing. In verse 1, he talks about that child again in a Roman household, and he couches it in terms of an heir having everything but having nothing at the same time. And here's what he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he owns everything. I mean, he's According to the laws of primogeniture, this is the oldest child, and when he dies, he's basically going to get the whole ball of wax. I'm the oldest of three boys. I'm ready for them to bring it back. Amen. Mama says no. Though he is the owner of everything, verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, he uses two words there. It's a similar concept to the pedagogue in the last part of chapter 3, but these two words, guardians and managers, two different Greek words, two completely different words. Um, The concept here, even though it's similar, is a little bit different. The words guardians and managers carry with them more the idea of a manager or what we might call a steward. It's what Joseph did in the house of Potiphar, except he was doing it for a grown man. He was managing the affairs of somebody else's property. In other words, Joseph, as it related to to Potiphar, had control over what we might call tens of thousands of dollars. Lots of property. How much of that did Joseph own? Zero, right. He just took care of it. Well, that's what these guardians and these trustees did financially for the young boy. They managed the affairs that that boy was eventually going to receive, uh, even though the trustees didn't own it. And the young boy hadn't yet received it. Now, in Roman times, that was the case. If you were an elder son, you were put under the charge of a steward until such time as you were of age and couldn't get control of all those wonderful resources yourself. You get The steward was given charge of the state, wasn't his. He just managed it for a season till the eldest son came of age. The father declared him an adult, and uh, he would receive it all. But up until that point, even though all of that stuff was his by title, it wasn't his by actual possession. It wouldn't become his by actual possession until the timing was right the timing according to the father. And hopefully by now you can see where this is going. The father would have to say, now the time is right. He's of age. He's mature enough. Now we're going to release the purse strings and we're going to give it to him and he can begin to take care of it all by himself. But up until that time, even though it was his by title, that young boy couldn't put his finger on a dime of it. He was really no different from a slave. Everybody told him what for, and everybody told him what he would do. But there would come a time where he'd be full grown. And then for the first time, once he was full grown, declared free by the master, 
he would start living like a free man. Now, Paul's point is that the law functioned like those stewards. That was the law's function. The law functioned like those managers, like those stewards. Uh, And in the meantime, while we're under the law, uh, we're no different from a slave as well. We're more of a slave than we are a child of God. Prior to knowing Christ as Savior and Lord, the truth is that's, that's, that's absolute. Everybody, whether you're a Jew under the law or a Gentile under pagan idolatry, it doesn't matter. Before we are set free through a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, we are all in a condition of slavery. We're in a condition of human bondage. That's Paul's point when he says in verse 3, in the same way. As that child under the household trustees, in the same way, when we were children, in other words, before we met the Lord and were set free, before we became a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we also were what? Enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of the world. Now, he doesn't define what those elementary principles are, and it's probably a good thing because they're probably different from person to person to person in some sense. Uh, The word literally means we were under or enslaved to the elements. And that usually in Greek literature refers to the elements of the world, right? Things like air and water and oxygen and fire and all of those things that are just basic to physical life in the world. But the ESV translation here adds the words, uh, the word principles, elementary principles, because the word could be applied in a systemic sense or in an educative sense or in a business sense or in a religious sense even to talk about the rudimentary principles that we have to learn first as a, as a student before we can become an advanced student. For example, elementary principles in terms of our education as people In other words, when you're five years old, you don't start out on quantum physics. It's impossible for you as a five-year-old person to write a dissertation on the theology of the Apostle Paul. Might be good to start with your ABCs, amen? So the ABCs are kind of elementary principles, right? That's where you begin. It's the rudimentary building blocks of learning. First, you learn your ABCs. Then you learn how to form a word. Then you learn how to construct a sentence. And then you learn how to write a paragraph. And pretty soon, after a period of years, you're ready to actually write an essay or a research paper that actually makes a little bit of sense. But first, you got to begin with the elementary principles. And you could apply that not only in English. You could apply it to science. You could apply it to physics. You could apply it to chemistry. You could apply it to just about any discipline. And you can apply it to your faith as well. There's some elementary principles that we've learned, some of them good, some of them not so good. And the thing about life with God is that you got to move on. That means there comes a time when it's just time to move on. Now, for the Jews, the elementary principles was the law. I mean, they saw that as the end game. In fact, if you'd have talked to a rabbi at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, They would have seen the law as graduate school, not as elementary school, but Paul comes and says, no, the law was elementary school. That's where you start in life with God. You let God tell you how to define sin, what bad behavior is and what good behavior is. 
You have to know some things, and this is really where it began. So for the Jew, they were under the elementary principles of the law. And Paul says, in order to truly know God, you've got to be set free from that. You've got to move on from that. For the Gentiles, who really didn't know anything about the law, they were under the elementary principles of the world religiously in terms of pagan idolatry. And that's an example that everybody, I mean, you don't have to be a Jew to be drawn to God. Everybody's born into this world is created in the image of God. The worst pagan center that you can think of was created in the image of God. And that means he's got or she has wiring on the inside of them that I think by birth uh, compels them to think about something beyond this world system, that we had to come from somewhere, the world had to come from somewhere. I've said many times it takes a whole lot more faith to believe in a big bang than it does to believe in a creator God. And so even the most lost of people who bow down and worship other things, maybe statues of wood or uh, statues of stone or some other form of astrological deity or maybe people who are just bound up in the biggest lie that's ever been told, which is secular humanism, that you can become your own God. Regardless, those are elementary principles and you've got to be set free from that. They are enslaving you and you'll never be set free unless and until God does something to draw you to himself and to liberate you from that bondage. But no matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. The point is we're all in bondage to something. Everybody with me? Amen? We're all in slavery, spiritually speaking, to something. Jesus said that in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a what? slave to sin, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means if all have sinned and everyone who sins is a slave of sin, mathematically speaking, transitive property of equality, if all have sinned and all who sin are slave to sins, then all are slaves. That's right. Very good. Mathematics scholars at Hillcrest this morning. We're all slaves. Jesus made that very clear. And if you're a slave, you really have no hope unless somebody with the appropriate power and authority shows up and buys you out of it and then sets you free. And that brings us to the drama, okay? Having established our need, the incarnation reveals that all of us have a need to be set free. Secondly, the incarnation reveals God's provision of a Savior. Not only our need for a Savior, but the fact that God provided a Savior. So the law was in charge of the people of God functioning as this strict guardian, manager, trustee, supervisor until everything changed at a place called Bethlehem. And we see it in verse 4. But, but, see the change of direction here? This was life before slavery. Here's a divine but. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his what? Son. 
born of a woman, born under the law. Let's stop there for just a moment. I love that phrase, in the fullness of time. The concept of fullness means completion. You remember those six stone water pots at Cana of Galilee, Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine. Jesus, told, before he told them to draw it out and have it become wine, he told, he told them, fill those water pots up to the brim. Those six stone water pots, a picture of the law. Six is not seven, it's one short. The law always comes up short. And he says, before he does the miracle, why would he order those pots brim full? It's a sign. The old order is done. The old order of the law has been what? Fulfilled. And now we're told in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. In other words, when all had been accomplished to set the stage for the coming into the world with the Redeemer, the, relib- uh, the Deliverer, to complete God's plan for redemption, God sent forth His Son. Another way of saying in the fullness of time is at just the right time. When the time was just right, God sent the Son into the world. That's what that earthly Roman father would do in declaring his child an adult. It wasn't just at a fixed age. It may have been as early as 14, may have been as old as 20. Depends on the child. Amen, parents? Your children are not all the same. They didn't mature at the same rate. They didn't arrive at adulthood at the same time. No, the father had to determine the fullness of the time. And when he did, when he saw that the time was right, that's when he would declare the son full grown and release the inheritance. And the same thing is done by God the Father. He determined the exact time when his son would come to provide the opportunity for men and women who were bound up spiritually in some way to be released so that they might receive the blessing of the inheritance of the kingdom the inheritance of heaven. And you know, that's the thing about God. We get upset with God. I know nobody here has ever been upset with the Lord. We all tend to get disappointed with God and upset with the God. Why hasn't God moved? Why hasn't God shown up? Why am I having to endure this? Can I just remind everybody this morning that our Lord is sovereign God of heaven and earth. He is never early. He's never late. God is always right on time. He always acts in the fullness of time. And that's true in terms of the sending of his son, but it's also true in terms of how he relates to your life and mine. This is why, listen, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is always at work and that God is always exercising his plan according to his divine purpose, you'll never be able to do what Jesus said to do in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and not be anxious about your life. Why do you worry about your life? Because you don't believe God. You don't believe what you say you believe about God. Because if you believe God, you wouldn't be so stirred up all the time. Life can be hard. But you have to believe that if God is going to take care of the sparrows, God is going to take care of you. Because he always acts in the fullness 
of the time. Never early, never late. Jesus came at just the right time. Now, we can't know why that was. We don't know everything about what that means, about why it was the perfect time for the Savior to be born, but there are several things I think that make sense. One, we know it was the right time culturally, because for the first time now in the world, there's a common language. Up until the time of Alexander the Great, there was just this balkanization of nation states, and they were all separated from one another, and they all spoke different languages, spoke different dialect. Now, after the conquest of the then known world by Alexander the Great, he institutes a common language, Koine Greek. And local dialects were still spoken. Jesus still spoke Aramaic fundamentally. But just about everybody knew the common business commercial language of common Greek. And that made the gospel accessible to this hugely wide swath of people unlike never before. It was the right time culturally. Likewise, it was the right time politically. Now the Roman Empire is in complete control. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It's a relative time of peace and stability in the world. And the Romans had developed this massive highway system that for the first time made traveling, international travel, as easy as it had ever been up to that point. Again, providing this wonderful opportunity for the gospel to spread more easily than ever before. It was the right time culturally. It was the right time politically. It was the right time religiously. Because now for 1,500 years, the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets had been pointing the way ultimately to a Savior who'd be born. And many, if not most of the Jews, were probably wearied by being held prisoner by the law. Oh, they still taught that it was possible to keep it, but they knew it was impossible. And many, I believe, were jaded by that. Is there not something better Gentiles had liquidly become jaded by this pagan religious system that most of them didn't believe. They didn't believe there was any power in statues of marble or stone or, or wood. Most of them knew that was a sham. That was a cultural thing in much the same way Christianity is for a lot of people today. It's cultural for a lot of people. It's not real to them. It's just a system that they're more familiar with than anything else. No, the time was right. The world was ready then for a deliverer to come and to save them. And Paul takes a few minutes to describe for us very briefly what a deliverer Jesus was. Three things that we can know about him. First of all, we're told that Jesus was the Son of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his what? God sent forth his son. Notice it does not say God created his son. God did what? Send forth his son, which implied what about the son? That he's already alive. That's right. Can I have an amen this morning? This speaks to the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Eternal son of God, co-equal with God the Father. He is God the Son and the fact that he was sent by the Father from heaven to earth, from point A to point B, implies that he existed before he was ever born 
in Bethlehem. Don't ever get the impression that Jesus got his start at Bethlehem, only in the physical. But the Bible says in John 1, what? In the beginning, in the beginning that had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. That's the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. He was born Son of God, eternal God in the flesh. But we're also told Jesus was the Son of a woman. Born of God, or the Son of God, born of a woman. God was his father. The Virgin Mary, of course, was his mother, which is important because that reminds us that Jesus not only was fully God, but he was also what? Fully man, fully human. That's the great mystery that we sing about in the old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, right? And so he was fully human, born of a woman. And because he has been tempted in every way, yet without sin, he lives today as our great intercessor, sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. And that's possible because Jesus was born not only of God, but born of a woman. But then also implied here is that Jesus was a son of the law. Son of God, son of a woman, son of the law. Born of God, born of a woman, born under law. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was born a Jew. He was born a Jewish man, tied to the Old Testament law, just like every other Jew was tied to the Old Testament law. Under this compulsion, to know the law and to obey the law, to live according to the law. But Jesus was different. How was he different? He actually kept it. He never failed, not the first time. He never let down the law. He always upholded the law, kept it perfectly. By the way, can I say this morning, that's what qualified him for the cross. Fully God, fully man, full obedience to the law. If any of those three things is not true about Jesus, the cross becomes ineffective. The cross becomes pointless. The cross becomes purpose. If Jesus doesn't keep the law, it's no different than you and me. He's a sinner, and one thing I know is one sinner cannot die in the place of another sinner. No, we need a perfect spotless lamb to shed his blood for us, and that's Jesus. Does all that make sense? Man, that's Christology in a nutshell. Jesus was sent by the Father, born of a woman, born under law, fully God, fully human, fully obedient. But why? Well, that takes us to a final thought that we've got to cover quickly about the incarnation. And then is thirdly, the incarnation announces God's purpose for the Savior. God's purpose for the Savior. Why? Why did God send his son? Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Verse 5, here's the purpose. To what? Say it out loud. To redeem those who were under law. So that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. Now, if you've got notes or you mark your Bible, you'll want to underline, underscore, or circle the two words, redeem and adoption. Or redeem and adopt, depending on your translation. 
That's why Jesus came. Why did Christ come? Why did God send forth his son to be born of a woman, born under law? To redeem and to adopt, to set us free and to bring us in. Can I have an amen this morning? He sets us free from the bad stuff so that he can corral us into the good and eternal stuff. To redeem us and to adopt us. To make us his children. That word redeem, of course, means to release. But you got to pay a price. It means to buy out of or to buy back. And it's the idea of setting a, a slave free by a ransom or uh, ransoming a prisoner of war. Somebody's in bondage. They can't get out. Only by paying of a ransom can they be set free, and you're paying the ransom in order to liberate them. And that's what, of course, God did. The price he paid for our liberation to the bondage of sin was his death on the cross. But then, set free for what? We're going to talk more about that next Sunday. Basically, set free to become God's child. Set free to be brought into the family of faith. Released from darkness to be brought into a kingdom of light and life. Why did Christ come? To redeem us, to adopt us, and not only to adopt us, but to make us heirs. Verse 7, so result... You are no longer a what? No longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I'm just saying, one of the great benefits of salvation, maybe the greatest benefit of salvation, is that we now can know God personally. You know God. You can talk to God. You can hear from God. You can be led by God. I mean, let me just ask you this morning, do you have a personal relationship with God? I'm not talking just about a biblical relationship with God. I'm not talking about an educational or intellectual relationship with God. Do you have a personal relationship with God marked by union and communion with the creator God of the universe? See, that's the whole point. The, the whole point of Christianity is to be able to call God Father, a personal relationship. And that's a gift that's made possible through something God does from the very moment that we're saved. To enable us to have this personal relationship, he gives us a gift. And you know what that gift is? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. God in us. Verse 6, and because you are, we might add parenthetically, now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our what? Into our hearts, crying what? Say it out loud. Abba, Father. That's right. Personal connection made possible by the spirit. So what you have here in Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is this picture of a double-sending father. God sent his son into the world because of his love for the world. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. For God so loved his children, he sent his spirit. 
See, it's a double sending father. He sends the son to save us. He sends the spirit for a multiplicity of purposes to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to sustain us. Now, I'm just saying this morning, if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, what you going to do with this passage today? Man, you'd have to be a blind man or woman to miss the Trinitarian God, God Father, God Son, God Spirit. It's all right here in seven short verses. Even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the concept is all over the Bible. God the Father, who is God over us, sends God the Son, who is God with us, who makes possible God the Holy Spirit, who is God in us. That's right. (laughs) I'm telling you, you can't get any closer to God than that. That's the point of the sending. The term Abba is indicative of that. It's a diminutive. It's cozy. You have to be careful here because there's a balance. You don't want to lose the awesomeness and the distance and the reverence of God, which is true. But at the same time, Jesus taught us to pray using the word Abba and using the word Father. It's the word Jesus used in the garden when he prayed at the greatest crisis of his life. He called out, no conservative Jew would have ever done that. They would have considered that too casual, too flippant, altogether too familiar, disrespectful. But can I say this morning, y'all still with me? Amen. Intimacy with God is the whole point of salvation. That's the whole point. It's what Jesus came to provide through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're no longer slaves without an inheritance. No longer are we under the curse of the law. No longer are we locked in the dungeon of darkness. No longer are we orphans without a home. Christ has come to set us free and to give us life and to bring us into the eternal family of God as children of God who can call God Father. And as a child of God, the Scriptures say we are now entitled to an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade away. Paul's been thundering since Galatians 1.1 almost. that You can't become a child of God through your own goodness. You can't become a forever child of God based on personal achievement. The way you become a child of God is through simple but committed faith in a Savior that God sent personally for you. And never forget that when God sent him, God sent him at just the right time. This is God's word and all God's people said.